0: I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad.
1: Everybody knows things are bad.
0: We see Americans hating each
1: other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There
2: is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because
0: of the way this society is organized, you have to expect
1: that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side.
0: It is a crisis that strikes the yeah. Uh, uh, we are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we say and hear these things, the millions of Americans cry out in anguish, did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. <laughs> we Attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. Three, two, one. We're met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem.
1: Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller. This week's episode is a bit of a departure because our guest this week is somebody who doesn't really work in the political world. But, of course, what she does is deeply enmeshed in the political and she does have a perspective on outrage. Our discussion was a little more personal than usual, though they're all pretty personal. But this guest spoke a lot about her own personal journey. So I guess I should probably introduce her. This is a person that I met at a author's book talk at Portland State University, and we were both part of the group that was invited to dinner afterwards to sit and talk to the author. I actually spent most of my time at the other end of the table talking to my guest this week, Anita Ramachandran. She's the executive director of MicroMentor, an organization within Mercy Corps, and we'll talk a little bit about what Mercy Corps is and what she does as the executive director of MicroMentor in the interview. So... I think we probably ought to just get right into it. Here is a need of Ramachandran. Why don't you tell me just a little bit about what Mercy Corps is and what you do for this organization?
2: So Mercy Corps is an international, uh, it's a global organization that works in over 40 countries around the world. And the work that we do is really diverse depending on where the intervention is. Usually it's, it's sort of precipitated by some sort of a disaster and, and, and a crisis. So that could be natural or or not. So we're right now responding to Dorian in the in the Caribbean, but we also do work in, this, in Syria around the refugee situation, where in countries like Colombia and Tunisia. So it really just depends on 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 the need. Specifically, I'll speak to what drew me here is how uh, our approach is really very inclusive, it's based on community-driven approaches or ideas that are coming from the community, and also like meeting a, filling a gap that that exists rather than going and duplicating what somebody else is doing. And innovation is really at our core. So we're always looking at ways that we can do do things differently, better, more efficiently. As part of that, we have an office within Mercy Corps, the innovation office, and that's where I sit and i lead a social enterprise it's called micromentor so my role is i'm the executive director of micromentor which is a social business that supports entrepreneurs around the world with access to uh, volunteer mentoring the best analogy i can use for micromentor is it's a dating site so entrepreneurs come up come from all over the world they sign up they say what their business challenges what their needs are mentors are coming from all over the world they're signing up there's something that they might have seen in an ad or a message or through a partnership seen that yeah i think I, I i'd like to give back and and share what i know at micromentor we definitely are trying to break many barriers one of them being that mentorship is a very elite concept and only certain people can be mentors um, I believe that, you know, if you, if you have a skill, if you have a talent, if you have experience, you can share it. it. You don't have to be the CEO of a company to do that. You know, you could be somebody that's run a business for a couple of years and you know how difficult it was to get it off the ground. And you have something to share to an entrepreneur in, in the U.S. or Mexico or Africa or anywhere. So the idea that mentorship doesn't have to lie in one hierarchy and then the people that are receiving it are in a different hierarchy is one of the one of the things that we're trying to break down is to say anyone can give back.
1: How did yeah. you get involved in this? Were you a mentor? Mm-hmm. Are you a former entrepreneur?
2: Maybe, maybe I am. I started a nonprofit when I was um, in my early 20s.
1: That's entrepreneurial for yeah. sure.
2: <laughs> With a few women here in Oregon, we started an organization called SAWERA, South Asian Women's Empowerment and Resource Alliance. It was to help South Asian women uh, who are victims of domestic violence um, here in Oregon. It started becoming clear that most of the resources, mainstream resources, were not culturally sensitive. They didn't quite know how to address... I mean, language is probably the least of them. It's, it's really everything. It's like the cultural nuances of somebody who's dealing with this from a South Asian context. And so uh, the nonprofit had a... Both in education as well as, um, as as a support agenda to it. So a lot of the what work I did was talk with you know community centers, police officers, shelters to sort of get them to understand.
1: Was you that know. your entry point into what I often call do-gooding, or did you have prior experience <laughs> that brought you to that particular thing, or was I this just a problem that you saw that you wanted to address? Yeah, it was
2: just a problem that you know a few of us saw. There were about six or seven of us who got together. We were helping one woman and then realized that this might be not an isolated case. And there's so many myths around you know, domestic violence that it doesn't happen to people who are educated or you know, who are come from a you know, good socioeconomic background and all of that. So it was definitely something that I just saw a need and, and felt very drawn to, to helping.
1: So I'll ask you the question that I ask all of my guests. What is something that used to outrage you but no longer does and why the change?
2: I think it's it this i uh, notion about expectation from people like you know what should they be doing and or that they they should be doing this or should be doing that. And they show up in so many different ways. This this should have, could have. It, get, it got me really worked up in terms of injustice around why somebody would do something a certain way, whether it's my family or my friends or, you know, people close to me and a lot of um, self-righteousness around, well, I did this for them and they're not doing this. And, you know,
1: so people doing the sort of expected would outrage you when it seemed to deviate from what you thought was the just thing or the right thing or the kind thing or right
2: and outrage I don't know if that if that's the word I, I would be like you know disdain ex, you know sort of complete um, lack of ability to understand it and uh, extreme disappointment and (laughs) I would say extreme
1: disappointment and outrage are very close cousins and disdain is definitely a related and and there's a
2: need for me to have to process that all the time that was probably when I realized that it's my problem and it's not theirs
1: the self righteousness was coming from you and that was fueling your disappointment and your frustration and there's
2: always a you know like this this notion and this need for me to have to process that and say, well, you know, well, so-and-so, and and they did this or they didn't do this or whatever. And then I realized, you know, I, I forget whether it was a class or a book, this idea that if a guy comes and snatches your bag and in the process knocks you down and, like, runs away with it, he's done what he needs to do. Why he did it or whatever is a different matter. Now, I can sit and stew and stew and stew, and no change is going to happen. Absolutely nothing. Versus I can, you know, sort of move on from it. Now, if I am, then I've taken whatever it is that he intended or didn't intend, and I am just have let it stick inside of me, and now it's become a problem for me. Like, I'm continuously upset about something when he's gone.
1: How could somebody do this to me? What's wrong with them? Why?
2: He's totally done. Like, he's done. He's accomplished, and, you know, he'll deal with whatever he has to do. But it was my problem. It was mine to keep and mine to, to leave. It's, it's still, it still happens. I mean, people do things and I still feel affected, but it's become, you know, I'm a little bit more Teflon coding around it.
1: What were some of the specific practices that you engaged in to help you along that path?
2: I think for, I, I probably went through years not even thinking about this and just working on autopilot. I probably never even addressed it. Maybe I did in small ways, but really, yeah, I want to say a good portion of my life was probably just done playing out my own patterns and conditioning in a very sort of you know uh, natural way right it's uh, it's probably been life events that um, pushed me to maybe like pain or trauma and where i've had to step back and say like you know how did i get here and what happened and, you know why am i feeling this way that allowed me to do a little bit more introspection because i didn't I don't like being in pain. (laughs) So it felt like, okay, well, clearly doing the same thing is going to not yield different results, so I have to do something different. So those moments in time, which life always affords me one of those, and, you know, another growth opportunity, made me sort of focus and think about um, my own role and, like, my own family of origin or my conditioning, my patterns, whatever that might be. So I've done a variety of different things, one from intensive work like you know like doing like a week long in retreat around examining my role in this world and so I've done that I've definitely read books I you know I speak to I've surrounded myself by, with people who um, really matter in my life I've sort of let go of the ones that are not um, contributing and where, the, where I can contribute and they can it's like so I've, I've my life is I've invested probably the most amount of time on myself in the last eight years. So self-investment
1: in, what can we call this? Psychological growth, personal growth. Personal
2: growth, yeah.
0: Has it's, And you. I know
2: that it's a lifelong process, you know, it's never going to end. You're
0: listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support, We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think and we can help you. Visit us at com and tell us what you're thinking about.
1: So you have more or less successfully Overcome this disdain, self righteousness, but yet you still do have some outrage. Yeah. Uh, so, what are the sources of your outrage still? And are you trying to work through that, or are you happy to hold on to your other forms of outrage? You mentioned inequality earlier. Is that something you're trying to feel less outraged about, or are you comfortable with being outraged by that?
2: I want to say that my outrage, or you know, those extreme reactions that I would have, are um, things that I'm able to. Turn around a little faster than before. Instead of letting it simmer for a long time and not knowing it, I have tried to take a negative situation and try to understand what my role can be. Because what's not helpful is for me to be passively outraged about things that are happening and not do anything about it. Because then it's just like you know, I'm taking it in, not doing anything about it. So.
1: Now you work for an organization that is basically constantly addressing pretty terrible situations in the world. Yeah. You know, some of them human-created, many of them. You know, some are natural disasters. Many of them are just are political or social disasters. So you're, you're facing this sort of thing daily, yeah. right? Is there something that you tell yourself that helps you to get to work every day okay. and not be crushed by just disappointment in the world Uh. absolutely
2: i actually um one of the things that uh, this is a very personal way for me to cope with this is i um i don't engage too much with day-to-day news i I just don't i've realized that my purpose in life is to make this world a better place in a way that i can and just constantly reading about everything that's happening is not helpful to me
1: so you stay out of the news cycle. How I, do you get information?
2: I'll, you know, I'll browse through and like choose to read like one New York Times article. I don't watch the news uh, on a daily basis. I pick and choose what I want to read.
1: Right. You don't get pulled into the vortex I, of I, the I, news you know, cycle and all that. It well,
2: of also it. because it, what it does is it, it creates that outrage. And it takes away from my, my current purpose, which is to do this job and to do it really well. To take care of our like the community the global community of entrepreneurs it's to take care of people that are in my team and the relationships that are in my small sphere and if I'm if I take myself out of it because I'm upset about something that you know Trump did one day I'm letting you know all of those factors take away from my purpose and I think that's that's a bigger loss
1: that's a great perspective. It's very difficult, though, to resist the pull Absolutely. of the vortex. And and are there? Are you, have you just gotten good at it? I mean, you you still have the news feed on your phone, right? You yeah. didn't take that off, so you you haven't.
2: Con- I have it. No, no, I, I'm. You I'm see the with. headlines,
1: <laughs> uh, so you haven't just put yourself into a into a dark corner where there's no news coming <laughs> oh. at you except for what you seek out. So yeah. you're able to to withstand the, the stream of headlines mm-hmm. and yet not get pulled in.
2: The, because there's one couple of things. One is that I think when, we, when there's all of this, initially what happened was like complete apathy. Like, I can't do anything about this. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm just frustrated. I'm upset. When Trump got elected, I was in Mexico for an international conference around volunteering. I was going to be speaking at like 8 a.m. and the previous night this came, and I was I was a mess. I was crying till like 4 a.m. because it was I was thinking about all these years that I spent around women's rights and like working on that, and I felt like all of that was just a waste. Like look, this is what we've done, and and then I realized that yeah, it feels like that, but I, I don't think when we're in the middle midst of it that we have the ability to zoom out and look at it from. 20 50 100 years from now like this trajectory of what it's going to, what it's doing we we don't have that ability to see it young people standing up and speaking for their rights you know talking about what they what they need people coalescing and creating movements and changes the me too movement or around the around climate it's activating us in a different way and we wouldn't know what the result is for a very long time the thing that I knew is that I just had to keep doing the thing that I can do. Whatever however small it is, I just have to keep doing my thing. Pick, I'm not able pick a to do it. And, yeah, and I, I, in that I lane. would love to participate in the rallies and be there and like, you know, take a cause and really be activist around something because I care about all these things deeply. I just know that my action there is going to be less powerful than me taking the actions that I do on a daily basis because my work is also related to social good. So since I'm already doing that on a daily basis, I just feel like I should just get really good at doing that and doing this in a in a way that is breakthrough. So really creating change at a massive scale, like how can we help not thousands, but hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs? How do we get people to give back without wanting to be paid. We could have a million mentors easily, like we should, right? If everybody said, I'm really frustrated with what's going on in the world, I'm going to turn around and do help somebody.
1: So having an impact in one area, a pretty big impact, helps you to stay drilling deep in yeah. one area and stay in that lane you've yeah. chosen and avoid kind of spreading out. And then you mentioned earlier apathy that can mm-hmm. come. Do you see that as a problem among young activists who... Go from energized outrage to apathy because they 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 spread their efforts around too much, or they're they're wanting to change everything at once.
2: I don't. I actually don't think that about the young people. I think they're actually. This is a new generation. People are really sticking with it. Like young people are sticking with it. You know. I mean, Park Lane those kids have not given up right. you know they're still fighting and it's been it's going to be almost 2 years
1: and they have picked their
2: they have picked well, their because the picked them at. but
1: they have stayed in that lane they have and they're stayed. drilling deep there
2: because you know my daughter just started at american university and i was there doing new parent orientation sitting next to one of the Park Lane parents one of the kids that's actually part of the movement and Some of them have taken gap years. This is their primary focus, regardless of what they're doing. I just see that young people are not doing the thing that... I feel like somehow in our generation, we might have done, like, you know, become really activist, activists when we were, when we were in college, and then, like, you know, and then you say, oh, well, real Just life... are shaking our fists
1: at the injustices of the world then, in and general, then real life and life takes up out. And
2: then, you know, of course, you have a family, and you have kids, and, you know, I can't be thinking about these things. I have to be more balanced, middle of the road. All of those words start coming in. I'm more optimistic about the younger people. I think I'm... I'm a little worried about the middle-of-the-road people that, are, that may or may not um, stay invested.
1: So it's, it seems to me that your advice is focus on something that mm-hmm. you can have an impact on. Now, the difficult question would be, I'm a person who has five or ten different interests or outrages. Yeah. And if your advice is, well, pick one and drill down and work hard on that, stay in your lane. How do you pick, though? What, what helps you sift through the set of things that just make you crazy about the world? Because there are plenty of things. Yeah. And if it's a pick something and work hard in that area and have an impact, what helps you do that?
2: In my case, it just picked me. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate that it picked me. I do care about some other topics. Here. I mean, I do care about... Personal growth and development and people connecting, I feel like one of the challenges we have is that we don't connect as human beings with one another. Why I'm hoping that our work with MicroMentor is really about creating human connection for change and that unlikely pairs are going to connect and help each other with literally no reason why they should be doing that. There's no no hidden agenda here. Um, so he, the more you can do where you can feel it and, you know, you can actually connect with other people, the I think the better we understand that these differences are going to be exist forever. We're never going to get past those. I, you know, I donate where I can. So, you know, I donate to Planned Parenthood. I'll donate, you know, to causes that, that touch me. I think my money might go farther than me going there and spending whatever time that I need to or investing some of the energy that I can because that will just be like... Uh, it won't move the needle. It's not that I have... Suddenly now entrepreneurship is my biggest passion in the world. I care about lots of things. (laughs) But I I do... I really care that... I I think that the biggest problem we are facing is probably like an emotional poverty, a psychological one, rather than anything else. So I think the more that we can create empathy for each other and we can connect with one another, I think that's... Whatever it is that you pick... Use that lens.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, you uh, you say emotional poverty, and that makes me think that we are poor in certain emotions because we have plenty of emotions. Our emotions exist 100% of the time, 24-7. It's just that if certain emotions crowd others out and that's why i talk about outrage with a lot of people because yeah. outrage can be a very crowding out kind of emotion yeah. and it generates other very powerful emotions that also crowd out frustration anger fear uh, you know or apathy powerlessness these things can crowd out the room that we have for empathy the room that we have for focused passion the room that we have just for love that's one of the reasons why I ask about people overcoming their outrage is, is because it, to me it seems like a way to make more room for other feelings that will then help us to do what we think is necessary. And People have different views on what will make the world a better place. Yeah. But if there's more room for everybody to work towards making the world a better place, even though there's going to be conflict and diversity of what those images are, then it seems like that's going to be a step forward.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I was reading this book which was a friend of mine gave it to me and I I couldn't put it down I read it on the plane when I was traveling most recently it's called Reboot it's by this guy named Jerry Colonia it's about you know he provides consulting and coaching and leadership for people that are in business leadership positions but the book was a complete surprise to me because it was really about personal development and growth and it had this this uh, story which I'm sure you've heard from you know it's like more of a Buddhist story where the student asked Pema Chandran, You know, I'm suffering, and I'm and I'm, I'm having going through this really hard time. And and she, you know, sort of said, go around your neighborhood and collect a mustard seed for every person that's not suffering. And sure enough, I mean, you know, person came back empty-handed. So suffering is universal. I mean, we just have to understand what's our role and how do we handle that individually. But I have these extreme emotions. I absolutely have. One, I think I am way to go, so far to go in terms of actually figuring out my life and what, what I need to do and stumbling and getting back up. That's going to be a lifelong process. But what I've realized is when I'm going through outrage or these extreme emotions, it's always an opportunity for me to see why is this happening to me? Like, why do I feel this? Because unless I unpack that, I'm not going to be productive in the solution space. Right, use it I'm as just, an opportunity
1: for introspection rather yeah. than just turning outward at the world and howling at the injustice. Yeah. Or the- and
2: and I'm not saying that those are not important feelings because you need to be like you know excited and outraged and you know feel deeply about something.
1: They can be motivating. Those but feelings. they can
2: be motivating. But unfortunately, I I can't be productive in what I do until I see what I'm doing. What am I bringing to this? If I don't unpack that then I'm just going to, you know, maybe perpetuate the problem, but just in a different way. So that that that's probably been my, my thing is and I've tried to shorten the cycle of my extreme emotions right. <laughs> to from like years to months to like now weeks.
1: But as you say, it's a lifelong process mm-hmm. of getting better at this. So you, I would end by asking you to give some recommendations about readings or organizations that you think are worthy. You've already given one reboot. I'm gonna yeah. that'll be in the show notes for anybody who's interested in following that up. We'll get some links to that. Anything else that you would recommend to my listeners that they read or look at?
2: You know, I mean, I've I've become more of a uh, advocate of personal growth and development lately, and so I would say that uh, the books that helped me our range from personal development to, to leadership. When things fall apart is is a is a book by Pema Chandran that I that I really like and I pick up all the time because it's a good way for me to remember and remind myself around acceptance and um, and letting go and you know what I can do. I've really liked Grit by Angela Buckworth. I know that there, there have been a you know couple of memoirs. I think. Becoming by Michelle Obama, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. These have all like given me like a nice variety of perspective of how different people lead their lives. They all go through phases of disappointments and successes and outrage and all of that, and where they're channeling it and how they've ch- chosen. We can to learn from lives. their
1: suffering and their yeah. path through it. Yeah. Well, I really want to thank you for taking the time to sit with me today. This has been really interesting. I appreciate your perspective.
2: Great. Well, thank you. Thanks for seeking the perspective. <laughs>
1: that's another episode in the can, and I would like to thank Anita very much. That interview was recorded a couple of months ago, actually, at her offices in the Mercy Corps building in downtown Portland. I had scheduled it for this week originally, and there's a kind of a happy synchronicity to that, which is that I just got done with a three-day silent meditation retreat to talk about personal growth and the journey away from self-righteous disdain. It was certainly a helpful experience for me. That's the third time I've done that, and each time it's helped me to increase my serenity and to make my serenity more sustainable. I want to share a story that the teacher at this last retreat gave to us on the last night's kind of Buddhism Dharma lecture. This was a kind of classic Zen story, according to him. So there's a farmer and his son in you know ancient wherever, and a wild horse wanders into their paddock and kind of becomes their horse. And all the neighbors say to the farmer, they say, well, that's really good luck. What, what a great thing to happen to you. And the farmer says, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, we'll see. And the next day, the son is riding the horse and the horse throws him off and he breaks his leg. And the neighbors say this time, they say, oh no, what a terrible thing, what a tragedy. And the farmer says, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, we'll see. The next day, the army comes through looking to draft young men to take them away to the wars. And they don't take the farmer's son because he has the broken leg. The neighbors say, oh, that's very good luck. What good luck? And of course, the farmer says, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We'll see. So there is my retelling of the Zen story that was told to me this past weekend. You can make of that story whatever you want to make of it. And I will leave you to those thoughts. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Anita for the thought-provoking interview. And of course, I want to thank the band that submitted this week's song. It's the Breads, a group of people who live in Seattle currently and who are from various places. This is their original song called Tiny Hands.
0: Came here by the blood red, pushed him through. See Up my window sill. Ashes again. Take my hand so we can rise from the ashes again. Take my hand so we can rise from.